At a time of heightened nationalism, with nativist populism still in the ascendancy in many countries, at a time when in our own country, even the decision whether to wear a mask to protect our fellow citizens can be cast as a new front in the culture wars, at such a time it might seem odd to remind ourselves that what marks out the human species is our capacity for sophisticated forms of cooperation. But then, perhaps tribalism and collaboration are two sides of the same coin. And what can we learn from cooperation and conflict in the natural world? To explore this and much more, stay tuned to hear today's guest on Bridges to the Future. This is Bridges to the Future, the big ideas podcast brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to welcome Nicola Rehani, who's Professor of Evolution and Behaviour at University College London and the author of The Social Instinct, How Cooperation Shaped the World. Nicola, how are you? Hi, Matthew. I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Well, it's a pleasure. It's a a very engaging book, and I learned fascinating things about species ranging from cleaner fish to meerkats, from termites to chimpanzees. So I guess I wanted to start by asking you, what, what inspired you to write the book, Nicola? So the book basically reflects the topic that I've been working on for the last sort of 15 years or so in my career, which is to try to answer the question of why individuals would ever pay costs to help one another. And obviously, if we take a sort of very narrow reading of a Darwinian view of evolution by natural selection, we can be tempted to focus on things like competition and struggle for survival and things like nature, red in tooth and claw. These All this type of imagery springs to mind. And yet, when we actually look around us and we look in the natural world at the kinds of behaviours we see, not just in our own species, but in lots and lots of other species as well, what we actually see is that nature is actually characterised to a very great extent by cooperation. And so my own career has tried to understand the reasons why this level of cooperation exists both in our own species and in some other non-human species. And I thought that now was a really good time to try to challenge this narrative that, you know, seems to have taken hold that maybe that humans are a sort of selfish species, that we are inherently competitive, destructive, and to try to offer a different perspective on human nature and to align that more with what we see with other species in the natural world. Now, I have a a bit of an obsession about academic disciplines and the divide between academic disciplines and how academic disciplines view the world in completely different ways. And one of the things that interested me in the book is your career, because what's unusual to me is that you have both studied animals, the natural world, in great detail, but you've moved on in your career to study human beings. And that felt quite unusual to me to have crossed that divide. Tell us a little bit about how your career has evolved and what being a professor of evolution and behavior means. 
Yeah, you're totally right, actually, that my career path has been really quite unusual as far as an academic trajectory goes. So as you said, the standard model in academia is to start out in one field and to become increasingly specialised in that area. What I did that was different was to become very question driven. And that has meant that I have taken a very interdisciplinary approach to trying to understand this big question that I was interested in. So I started out actually doing fieldwork in the Kalahari Desert on a species of bird that lives in very, very tight knit family groups in the Kalahari Desert. And those birds are called pied babblers. So I did my PhD research out there I then zoomed off to um, Pretoria to work on another species, which are called Demoraland mole rats. And if you haven't seen what they look like, then I... They're not very attractive animals, are they? (laughs) They, I mean, they're slightly more appealing than naked mole rats because they've got a bit of fur, but they're not going to win any beauty competitions, (laughs) I think it's fair to say. I've worked on a species of another species of very social bird in the outback of Australia called Apostle Birds. And then most recently, I've also worked on a small species of fish that lives throughout the Indo-Pacific on tropical coral reefs. And the fish is called a blue streak cleaner wrasse. And you can just think of it as a cleaner fish. And that fish is a really interesting model of cooperation because they offer a cleaning service to their clients by removing ectoparasites from the surface of the skin. And so in this species, we see something which we think of as being a quintessentially human thing to do, which is cooperating with complete strangers on a daily basis. And of course, now I work increasingly, my work is on humans. And so I've worked on a bunch of different species and I've jumped from a very biology focused academic department. And now I'm based in experimental psychology. And so I have sort of dipped my toe in a few different academic disciplines and departments, as well as working on a bunch of different social species. And that, it reminded me of how powerful it can be when an academic career crosses those kinds of divides. And so you're able to reflect on the differences between human beings and other species, um, having understood both, as it were. There are so many fascinating accounts here of these different species that you've started to talk about. But I kind of got, there was a couple of things which were recurrent for me in the book and and, and fascinating. I, I want to turn to those. So the first is that there's a kind of assumption, an assumption I had held, which was if we want to look for parallels with human behavior, we should look at those species who are closest to us. In other words, you know, chimpanzees are the apes that are closest to us in the kind of evolutionary tree and that's where the closest parallels will be found but interestingly you argue that that actually what is as important as as it were proximity in the evolutionary process is the kind of context the environment in which an animal finds itself a species finds itself and so actually some of the best parallels with human behavior aren't from our closest relatives but they're from species that for one reason or another have to develop sophisticated forms of cooperative behavior yeah that's really nicely summed up actually and that is one of the key messages in the book is that despite the fact that it's completely instinctive to us to 
look to the species like chimpanzees and bonobos and gorillas if we want to see examples of behaviours that we see in ourselves among non-human animals. Often those species aren't the right places to look. And to give just one really easy example, for a long time, we thought that teaching was something that was unique to humans. So when we think of teaching, we think of it as being this quintessentially human thing to do. You're probably imagining a teacher standing at the front of a classroom and a bunch of pupils who are all there ready to learn. And this, you know, we don't think necessarily that we would see anything like this in the non-human world. And for a long time, researchers looked for examples of teaching outside of humans. And the focus was on our closest living relatives, because there was an underlying assumption that in order to be able to teach, that would involve quite sophisticated cognitive powers, and specifically an ability to be able to put yourself in the pupil's shoes and to understand their belief states and their knowledge states and then to take actions to improve those. And so our natural assumption for a very long time in this field was that if we were going to find examples of teaching outside of humans in any species, it was going to be in those species that were brainy like us. And so we obviously explored this using the royal way here, but this was looked for to a large extent in chimpanzees and the other great apes. But there's just no evidence for teaching in any of these species. So there's very, very good evidence that young chimps are very good at learning things from their mothers. For example, they're very good at learning how to use a stick to fish termites out of a termite mound or watching and learning how to use a rock to crack a a nut or something like that. But there's no evidence for any active instruction on the part of the mother. There's no evidence that the mother goes out of her way to help the youngster learn something. And in fact, the first example of teaching that we had from a non-human species didn't come from a great ape or a primate or even a mammal, but it came from an ant. So in 2006, Nigel Franks and his colleagues published a paper showing that ants teach one another. And they do this by showing naive individuals the way to an important location, so either a food source or a nest site. And what happens in the ant species, in these tandem running ants, is that the knowledgeable individuals allow the the pupils to follow them very, very closely behind, and they actually stay in contact with each other. That's why they're called tandem running ants. And the teachers run quite slowly so that the pupils can make lots of excursions on the way to this new location and they can learn all the landmarks on the journey. And once they've done this slow journey with the teacher, they then know the route and they can become teachers themselves at that point. And of course, what we see here is that there's no need to impute really fancy cognition to understand teaching in this case. And actually, this assumption that if we were going to see teaching behavior, it would be in these, you know, cognitively sophisticated species like ourselves, I think hindered our search for examples of teaching in non-human species for a long time. Because what we actually see is that when teaching emerges, 
it emerges in contexts where there's a really high benefit to the pupil of learning that lesson and where the pupil probably wouldn't get the opportunity to learn that thing if the teacher didn't teach them. And that's just not the case in the great ape species, but it is the case for the ants. And now we know also for species like meerkats and probably domestic cats as well teach their offspring. When I was reading the account of cleaner fish, I thought this was kind of closest to the kind of analysis you would expect from an economist or a game theorist because of the sophistication of this process in which cleaner fish do something which is beneficial to the host. They're kind of parasites, but they are benign parasites. But yet there's always the temptation to become a malign parasite. And there's also an issue of how it is groups behave when you've got the problem of individual free riders. So tell us a bit about cleaner fish, because really, as I said, this was a, the more I understood this, it read like a kind of problem that you would read in an economics textbook. So I think the cleaner fish is a wonderful species. And if any of the listeners are lucky enough to have ever been diving in any tropical coral reef, it's quite likely that you have seen a cleaner fish. So the cleaner fish holds small cleaning stations on coral reefs, small territories, and they're visited by all the other fish that live on the reef. And the reason that the other fish, who we call the clients, visit the cleaner fish is because they want to receive a cleaning service. They want to have ectoparasites and dead skin removed from the surface of their skin. And the cleaner fish provides this service. They eat those ectoparasites and they provide this cleaning service that's very important for their client's health. Now, this all sounds like it should be reasonably happy scenario and, you know, the cleaner fish is getting some food and the clients are having this nasty dead skin and whatnot removed from their skin. So everyone is happy. But in fact, there's a conflict of interest between cleaners and clients because Although the cleaners will eat ectoparasites, what they actually prefer to eat and what they find more delicious, we've shown in experiments, is the living tissue of the clients. So given the chance, the cleaners will feed on mucus, which is a living tissue, and living scales rather than eating the thing that the client wants them to eat, which is the ectoparasites and the dead skin. So Now you have a really interesting system where you have interactions between strangers, where cooperation is the sort of desired outcome for one party, but where the other party, the cleaner fish, has this temptation to cheat. And this is very, very reminiscent. This basic incentive structure of the interaction is highly reminiscent of the kinds of interactions that we find ourselves in on an almost daily basis. And so one of the reasons that I think this cleaner fish system is just so fascinating to study is that it allows us to ask whether there are any general mechanisms that we see in cleaner fish that support cooperation in that system that we might also find that work to support cooperation in our own interactions. And as it happens, there are some similarities. So one of the most important mechanisms for sustaining cooperation in this scenario where one party, the cleaner, is tempted to cheat 
is punishment. And the clients will actually aggressively punish a cleaner fish who takes a bite of mucus or skin by chasing it around. And the cleaner fish behaves more cooperatively after it's been punished. So this punishment has the intended effect. And we know that punishment is, you know, one of the most important tools in our toolbox for sustaining cooperation among non-relatives. Another way that the cleaner fish client cooperation is sustained, which is even more surprising in some respects, is through a rudimentary concern for reputation. And again, this is something that we seem to have in common with these fish because we know that in humans, cooperation between strangers is to a large extent supported by concern for reputation. If you think about things like eBay or Airbnb or all these online marketplaces we have now that allow two strangers to come together and interact, those marketplaces are scaffolded on reputation systems. That's how they work. That's how trust is generated in those systems. And it seems that the cleaner fish have something similar going on. So when a cleaner fish is cleaning a client, Sometimes other clients will be at the cleaning station and they will be waiting for their own turn to get cleaned. Now, some of those clients are what we call fussy or, you know, you can think of them as prima donnas or clients that demand a better service. Those clients are fussy because they happen to have a very large home range. And that means that they have access to several cleaning stations within their home range. What that means is that if they don't like what they see while they're waiting for their turn to be inspected, they can simply swim off and find a different cleaner fish to interact with. Now, the really crazy thing is that cleaner fish seem to be aware when they're being observed by these fussy clients, by the prima donnas, and they actually give a better service to their current client when they're being watched by one of these fussy individuals so as to prevent the fussy client from swimming away. And so what we see here is that these two mechanisms that we think act as pillars to sort of scaffold cooperation in our own society also seem to be playing a really important role in this species that is so different to us in so many other ways, but has this one really important thing in common, that it regularly cooperates with strangers and where there's a temptation for at least one party to cheat. So Nicola, that story is, is, I found it absolutely fascinating and, and there are many others like it in the book. But there's a problem, isn't there, with with describing apparently sophisticated behaviours, whether in cells or in animals. And in the account you've just given me, you use the word fussy, you use the word aware, you use the notion of prima donnas. It, it's very difficult, isn't it, to be able to describe these things without imputing motive in the kind of human sense of conscious desire and choice. And of course, the classic example of this kind of mistake is is probably the most famous book of all about genetics, The Selfish Gene, Richard Dawkins' book, where people misinterpret selfishness as if as to justify this kind of selfishness in the human sense as a force in nature. And of course, Dawkins himself came to say he realized it wasn't helpful but to use the word selfish because, of course, genes aren't selfish in, in, that, in the human kind of sense. It is almost impossible, isn't it, Nicholas, to talk about these things without using terms which, which kind of imply a cognitive process is happening, which actually isn't happening at all. Yes. And I think what you've sort of tapped into here is a confusion or a conceptual confusion 
that often arises when I talk about cooperation. We in evolutionary biology, we give this confusion a very unwieldy label. We call it the proximate ultimate confusion. We don't have to remember what that means. The main thing to remember is that when evolutionary biologists are asking the question, why? Why does that individual do that thing? Why does the lion chase the springbok? Why do people have sex? We're always asking why questions. We're always seeking answers to these questions of why individuals behave in the way they do. And as an evolutionary biologist, we're always trained in a way that the answers to those why questions can come in different forms and specifically in what we call proximate forms and ultimate forms. Now, just if we stick with the example of why a lion chases a springbok, for example, we could answer that from an ultimate perspective or an evolutionary perspective and say, well, a lion who doesn't chase a springbok tends to have fewer offspring and therefore any genes that are associated with not chasing things will tend to not be passed into future generations. You can also answer that question of why the lion chases the springbok by saying, oh, it's because she's hungry, or maybe it's because she has a litter of cubs to feed or something like that. So what you can see is that these two kinds of explanation aren't mutually exclusive. They're both completely valid answers to the question of why an individual does something. But we should be really careful about making sure that we're not trying to offer the evolutionary answer as an answer to the psychological question of why. So if we go back to your point about the selfish gene, loads of the confusion about the terminology in the selfish gene arose because of this kind of proximate ultimate confusion, whereby although Dawkins was making the point that genes will generally act in ways that ultimately are advantageous to their bearers and can therefore be described as selfish in that kind of evolutionary biology language, what he's really not saying and what no evolutionary biologist is saying is that traits that have the consequence of increasing their bearer's fitness also mean that the bearer is psychologically selfish or that they intend for those outcomes to happen. And so there's this really important distinction that just because we can say something can be favoured by evolution and that, for example, reputation-based cooperation can be advantageous in an ultimate sense for individuals. What we're not saying is that every time somebody does something nice, they're only doing it because they care about their reputation. And that distinction is quite important. And I think that was the source of a lot of the confusion about the selfish gene, because I think people understood selfish to mean psychologically selfish, calculating, conniving, all these words that we associate with selfish motives and selfish psychology. And what Dawkins really was talking about was selfish in an ultimate evolutionary sense and wasn't making really any claims at all about the psychology or the motives that would bring that selfish end about. So Nicola, then, in light of this proximate ultimate confusion, which is a great a great concept, and and also you in the book, you're very clear about this. You're very clear about saying we can't simply take what happens in the animal kingdom in the absence of culture and language and history and, and apply it to human beings in a thoughtless way. 
Nevertheless, you do want to argue that understanding the evolutionary foundations of behavior across the natural world does help us with some of the choices we now face. Why, in a sense, given your understanding of this kind of proximate ultimate confusion, why is it you think that there are useful things that we can learn from the wonderful stories that you tell about species like the cleaner fish? I think we can learn something in a much more general sense. And I think we can learn that similar mechanisms support cooperation in a multitude of species, including us. And I think by appreciating what we have in common with other species, like the cleaner fish, for example, we know in the cleaner fish that punishment and reputation-based cooperation are these two really important pillars that make that interaction work. And we know that those things are really important in our own species as well. But we also know that there are clearly points of divergence between us and a cleaner fish. And in fact, I think that examining how other species solve their cooperative problems can, first of all, help us to see these points of similarity that we have, but can also then help us to understand where the differences with our own species really lie. And in fact, it seems that one of the key differences between us and other species is not necessarily in the behavioral outcomes that we see. For example, we teach, but so do meerkats, so do ants, so do pied babblers. We care about our reputation, but so do cleaner fish, apparently. So there's lots of commonalities about the behavioral outcomes that we reach that we can find with other species. But one of the big things that seems to set us apart is the cognitive journey that we take to get to those behavioral outcomes. So if we just think about the cleaner fish again, there's just no evidence that reputation-based cooperation in cleaner fish involves understanding how their own actions will influence the client's impression of them. Cleaner fish don't have that kind of cognition. They simply learn that if they bite one client, then the other one in the queue swims away and they learn through trial and error, essentially, not to do this. Humans obviously go about this very differently. When we manage our reputation, we look under the hood. We try to impute thoughts and beliefs and other hidden mental states to the people that we're interacting with and to try to understand how our behavior will update their impression of us. And so for me, the big question is the fact that we do use this different cognition to achieve cooperation. How does that affect the kind of scale of cooperation we can achieve? And where might that leave us vulnerable to you know, chinks in our cooperative armor as well in some respects, because there's the flip side of our human cognition that is that we can also experience emotions like jealousy and paranoia and things like this, which we don't see in the non-human world. And so I've talked so far as if this cognitive superpower is a, you know, a uniquely good thing. But in fact, the fact that we do think in this way and that we do look under the hood and we compare ourselves to other individuals and we try to understand what other people's intentions and beliefs are, that can also hinder cooperation in some ways. So I think taking this holistic view of social behavior on earth allows us to see what it is we have in common, but also really importantly to see where do we start to see the points of divergence and what are the 
consequences of those points of divergence. So Nicola, I, I'm going to hijack the last bit of our conversation to very cheekily ask you to kind of reflect on my own ideas. So I've written a lot and spoken quite a lot about a set of ideas based on something that I observed, which is that in lots of different disciplines, there is a kind of framework for understanding human motivation, which bears quite a lot of similarity. And in essence, it's a framework which, which identifies three core sets of human motivations. Authority, the things that we do because we're told. Belonging, the things that we do because of the tribe that we are part of and the kind of person we think we should be given that we are part of that tribe and individual aspiration our own personal story for ourselves and that in many ways we can understand a lot about human situations and human problems and even human solutions by thinking about the interaction of these three core motivations now this idea occurs in psychology organizational theory anthropology and various other areas I was interested to know whether this kind of pattern, this idea of these three motivations of authority, of belonging, of individual kind of aspiration, is that something which chimes a chord in terms of the natural world or is this something which is distinctively human? No, I think we could find parallels with the natural world because if you think about, I mean, in a Polistes wasp society, for example, these are wasps that breed socially where one dominant female breeds and everybody else helps her to raise offspring. She wields fierce authority and the subordinates basically have to toe the line. And so we see, we can see examples of sort of hierarchical behavior in very, very distinct species to us. And I think one of the things that I read on one of the blogs that you said that I thought really rang true in a way. And I think this is another thing where we see this across, not just across all species, but across all levels of life. I think you said something along the lines of big social systems have their own characteristics, but ultimately they comprise smaller systems, which are in turn the outcome of behaviors and choices. And I think that idea that we have like nested layers of complexity is something that rings true at all levels of life and is a really insightful sort of prescient way to say it in a way. So our individual bodies are made of cooperation. We live in family groups that are cooperative. We live in societies that are cooperative. And I think that that seeing those patterns, not just in our own species, but across all life on earth is a really helpful way to try to draw together these common threads of how life on earth works and how societies work ultimately. It's great to hear you say that because it goes back to the conversation we had right at the beginning of, of this, which is the problem of the kind of barriers between disciplines. Because when it comes to social sciences, the way sociologists or anthropologists who tend to look at groups describe the world is fundamentally different from the way that psychologists who tend to look at individuals view the world, which is fundamentally different from the way that economists who focus on kind of a transactional view of the world, but yet we're talking about human beings. And surely we would expect in some ways that which takes place at the societal level or that which takes place in the economic domain to reflect who we are as individuals. Similarly, 
psychologists don't pay enough attention to the fact that we are fundamentally social animals. And so they undertake all these experiments on individuals, which don't really tell us a great deal because they're detached from the cultural context in which we always operate. One last thing I want to discuss, Nick, which is the, the book's about cooperation. And when I've written about this kind of motivation, which I can describe as belonging or as solidarity, that is to say a motivation which is to do with the group and being part of the group. What I think is interesting about this and, and the way that I've, I've described it often as the best of us and the worst of us, that actually the things which drive us to cooperation and other regarding behavior and idealistic behavior are also can also be the wellspring of some of our worst characteristics in terms of tribalism for example. And this is, uh, again, I think a lesson of, of your book, that cooperation is a double-edged sword because we cooperate, we tend to cooperate with people like ourselves and very often cooperate with people like ourselves in order to fight against those who are not like ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I mean, that's so true. And so I have a chapter in my book, it's called Victims of Cooperation. And in that chapter, I make exactly the point you've just articulated, which is that we tend to think of cooperation as being this positive force, something we should strive for, something which will help us solve global problems. And in fact, quite often, cooperation can have victims. So for listeners of this podcast, I imagine words like nepotism, corruption, cronyism will not sound like words that you associate with cooperation. But of course, all those three words that I just said are forms of cooperation, but they're cooperation that it's, that's occurring at a more locally circumscribed scale and that which inhibit more global or societal cooperation from emerging or which have global or societal costs for other individuals. And so one of the key lessons of the book in some respects is that Cooperation is not just a silver bullet for solving societal problems, because what we really have to do is to find ways to cooperate at the scale at which we need it, at a global scale nowadays. And that is really the biggest challenge that I think that our species faces now, because we're just not very good at that. Yeah, and I, and I think, uh, as you know, as I've argued, Nicola, that we have to understand each of these drives that we have as having positive and problematic sides, that, that we need authority and that authority can be very powerful as it is in the natural world. But then overweening authority, self-interested authoritarianism is highly problematic. We've just talked about this in relation to cooperation, but it's also true of you know, individual aspiration, which can be an enormous power, powerful you know, wellspring of creativity, entrepreneurialism, how we fulfill ourselves, but can also be kind of atomistic and selfish and short-sighted. And always this makes me think that one of the things we need to spend more time on, we need to think more about when it comes to educating children, is just thinking a bit more deeply about who we are. And a book like yours, a book like The Social Instinct, How Cooperation Shaped the World, is is great because it does exactly that. It encourages us not only to know amazing things about other species that occupy the earth with us, but also to have greater insights into who we are. I can strongly recommend it. Nicola, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Matthew. 
That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.